0: Before we get started, we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the Word, spiritually prepared to worship through the study of God's Word. That means that we need to be in right relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. Scripture uses various terms to define this. It talks about walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, uh, walking according to the truth, or being filled by the Spirit. Whenever we sin, this relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, this uh, ongoing intimacy or fellowship with God is broken. And when we uh, confess our sin, Scripture says that God forgives us our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we are restored to that relationship so that we can continue to move forward in the Christian life. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are ready, spiritually prepared to go forward in our study today. We pray this in Christ's name. I mean, we, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we can come together to study your word and reflect upon these important truths that so we can learn how to how to claim these promises, learn how to focus our thinking upon you and what you provided for us, that we can learn how to trust you consistently, walk with you, that we may continue to grow and mature, and that as we look around us and we see so many different uh, threatening things on the horizon in our culture, opposition to biblical truth, opposition to biblical values, we see a disease, we see the threat of, of uh, Ebola, the threat of plague, the threats of war. Yet we know that we can relax, that we are not to take counsel of our fears. And as we've learning, we're have we learning in this passage, we are not to fret. We are not to get all caught up with the negatives that's, and the opposition around us or with the unrighteousness that seems to be so successful around us. But instead, we are to put our focus upon you. And now, Father, we pray that you'd guide and direct our thinking Today, in this lesson, in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're in Psalm 37. We're looking at a very well-known promise, reviewing the principle that the way to exercise the faith rest drill is to claim a promise. That's the first step, which simply means that we put our mental fingers around this promise and grab hold of it. It may be a full promise, one verse, two verses, or part of a verse, and we say, Lord, this is what you have said to do. We can extrapolate this a little bit. It's not just claiming a promise, but sometimes it's just focusing on a command in Scripture. And we looked at this in the context of Psalm 37, where it begins, Do not fret because of evildoers. And I pointed out that this, this command, not to fret, is repeated several times in the introduction. It is mentioned in verse seven and verse eight as well. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. And at the end, do not fret. It only causes harm. So this, this is a command. And so sometimes all we're doing is we recognize that we are doing exactly what the scripture says not to do. And we focus on that one command and in order to orient our thinking and orient the direction of our life at that point and that's part of the faith rest drill at all so we claim a promise then we think it through why is that true and that's important it's not just a matter of of grabbing the promise but we need to engage our thinking in relation to what we're told to do and why we're told to do it and many times in promises God says to do something and as a result or alongside of that he will do something else that's the promissory part for example, First John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, that is a statement. If we do that, then you have the promise. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is clearly a promise that if we do what God says to do, then he will do what he has promised to do and to forgive us and to cleanse us. So every time we confess sin, uh, we 're in essence, following through on that promise, claiming that promise, so we think through the rationales, and this involves really the biblical process of meditation, thinking about what God has said and why he has said it and so this this will bring to bear some of the things that we 've taught and some of the, and learned in, for example the bible study methods class it's it 's not just for pastors or Bible. Uh, teachers or for Sunday school teachers, but for anyone who wants to learn how to dig beneath the surface of the Word a little bit, just in terms of your own personal study, your own personal med- meditation. And that's the second step, thinking through the rationales that are embedded in the promise. And then this leads us to firm conviction about the promise and putting that into practice in our daily lives. So the promise we're looking at is in Psalm 37 4 and 5. It's a wonderful passage, it's a promise that many people use, and we began looking at this last time. The the promise reads delight yourself in the Lord. See, there we have a command. And he shall give you the desires of your heart. That's the result of those who for those who have implemented the command. So we have a command and then a promise. Uh, in verse 5, again, another command, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him. So it's a parallel statement, a synonymous parallelism in the second line. And then we have the promise, and he will bring it to pass. So this is a twofold verse. So we're just thinking it through in terms of that second step, the meditation on this verse, thinking through the embedded rationales. And as such, we went back to the first verse. We saw that actually in the Hebrew text it begins with the statement that this is a psalm of David, but it doesn't give us any specifics about the original circumstances. And there are many times that this would be true in David's life. Uh, it's not necessarily true um, Uh, or not necessarily tied to a specific situation. Now, what would happen in terms of the Psalms, uh, because they reflect a tremendous amount of thought, a tremendous amount of skill in terms of writing the poetry that's involved, is David would have found himself in some situation or some circumstance, and as he thought through that circumstance, certain doctrinal principles and doctrinal rationales became clear to him And he focused his attention away from the problem and onto the essence of God and the provision of God. And he thought through these various rationales that we've talked about in terms of the essence of God and the plan of God. And so he then, after the situation, would sit down and write out this psalm in terms of biblical poetry in a way that could be set to music and sung as a way of expressing praise to God or perhaps as a way of teaching or instructing others as to how they can trust God in the midst of difficult difficult circumstances. And this particular psalm was written according to uh, uh, an acrostic pattern based on the Hebrew alphabet, which tells us that it was written as a teaching tool or an instructional tool. This was one of the ways that, that Jews would memorize Scripture is if it's set in an acrostic pattern. So each word, each verse, rather, begins with the next, a word that begins with the next letter in the alphabet. So the first word in the Hebrew text of the first verse would begin with the letter Aleph. In the second verse, uh, the verse would begin with a word that begins with the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Beit, and so on. And so there's an alphabetic pattern here which would be used as a, as a mnemonic function in order to help people memorize the scripture. And throughout the Psalms, the, the whole concept of meditation and just the structure of the Psalms was designed to teach memory. This is something sadly that I find is lost in the lives of many believers today is they don't have a regular pattern of Bible memory and learning scripture. And there are many wonderful side effects to this. I think it enhances our memory. I think that as we memorize Scripture and discipline our minds to do that, it helps us in many, many other areas. For young children, it's especially important. If you have young children, then from the time that they are old enough to say their first word, just read verses to them over and over and over again. Then get them to repeat them. But the more that you do this, the more it gives them an opportunity when there 's not much in their brains yet to absorb those verses. My mother always told me that the first complete sentence I ever said was first John one nine Later on it was John three sixteen. I had these verses memorized long before I was a believer, but had them memorized when I was just uh, two or three years of age and it 's important to do that, and I remember that when I grew up. And uh, when we had Sunday school at the church where I grew up and when I went off to Camp Penile, uh, we would have these Bible memory uh, challenges and we would memorize Scripture. And as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times verses that I may not have thought about or verses that I had not as an adult consci- consciously memorized, verses have been brought to mind, I believe, by the Holy Spirit when I've been teaching that I memorized when I was a kid. And I remember the first years that I was a pastor, I would be teaching, and how often that happened, I would go back and I would be in the middle of teaching something, suddenly a verse would come to mind that I had memorized as a kid. And so the earlier we get into this pattern, the earlier you can get your children, your grandchildren to memorize Scripture, the better it will be. What what in the world would happen to us if we ever find ourselves in a situation where we don't have access to the Bible. We don't have access to the Word of God. And, and then we're just left with whatever promises that we have, uh, we have in our, in our souls. I remember years ago, I don't even remember the name of the, the man who was the POW at the time, reading a book about a Vietnam, uh, POW who wrote a book called In the Presence of My Enemies. And he talked about how as they were in the, in the prison there at the Hanoi Hilton, how they would, uh, the, the men were trying to remember Bible verses. And one person would remember a snippet of this verse and another person would remember a little, maybe another phrase of the verse. And they created a code using Mark, Morse code or some other code where they would tap things out and they would, uh, or they would talk to each other when they could and they would gradually piece together a, a, a tremendous number of biblical promises that were used to comfort them. But it was because of what they had stored in the soul. But some, some of those men didn't have much, or they might just remember a little bit. And it really emphasized the importance of preparation and, and Bible memory. So we began in verse one last time looking at this phrase, do not fret. And it's, the idea of do not fret is a, wor- a word that means don't be angry. Don't get all worked up. Don't get all bent out of shape or, or over something. Uh, that you have no control over. And the focus here is on evildoers, and that is those who uh, work in evil. They are the unrighteous. And I pointed out that this is like much of the wisdom literature. There are very, a lot of similarities between Psalm 37 and some wisdom psalms, and especially Proverbs, contrasting the righteous and the unrighteous. And we went to Psalm 1, and we showed that contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous last time, and that as... As the Psalms are written, it's not written where it's talking about the believer versus the unbeliever, but the righteous believer versus the unrighteous uh, believer. It's not necessarily saying that, that those who are true or genuine believers act a certain way and those who are not act another way. The concept of the one who does righteousness is not a positional concept of righteousness or because of imputed righteousness. It's emphasizing experiential Uh, experiential righteousness. And many of us have had experiences where we have been surrounded by people who are uh, unrighteous. They are gossips. They're maligners. Uh, Some of them have been Christians. Uh, Some of us have faced this uh, even among friends or coworkers where we have been unjustly attacked. And it seems like the person who commits these sins and commits these attacks upon us uh, succeed and they are promoted, and they reap rewards because of their unethical conduct. And so often this can cause us to get involved in a lot of mental attitude sins, anger, resentment, uh, revenge, vindictiveness, these things. And, And that's what this is talking about. Don't get upset. We can extrapolate this beyond a personal environment to talk about what's going on in the world around us. There is so much... Uh, legislative injustice in our world today, as we see our culture drift more and more away from the historic values of the uh, Judeo-Christian worldview that established this country and the um, uh, U.S. Constitution, and we live. In, we have to be honest. We live in a world now where the culture, dominated by the urban centers of the West Coast and the East Coast, and many urban areas in, in the middle of the country where there is much more of a liberal, uh, antinomian mentality. People just come together in large cities, and they do not want to follow any historic norms and standards, and they, they want to get away with whatever kind of immorality that uh, appeals to their particular, uh, particular sin nature. And yet many of us want to have a constitutional conservative government and the reality is that that it's going to be very difficult for a truly constitutional conservative government to rule a culture where the people desire a liberal antinomian way of life. And so we're constantly going to be presented with this, and we just can't spend our lives getting all bent out of shape about all of the injustice and unrighteousness that goes on around us. We can spend hours and hours, and I know many of us do, reading various websites and reading articles that detail uh, what is going on in our culture, and I think it's very important to be informed, but I think we need to be careful because it puts our focus on what's going on around us that's wrong rather than putting our focus on the Lord and what God is doing in our lives, in our environment. And that's the context here. It's don't get all wrapped up in what the evildoer is doing. Don't make that the focal point of your thinking, and don't let it get you uh, out of fellowship where you stay out of fellowship and you're constantly in a state of agitation. And there's a parallel here in terms of uh, the second line, don't fret and don't uh, be jealous or envious and this this second line indicates uh the fact that on the first line it's uh, you're, you're being affected because you're seeing the unbeliever get away with something, and in the second line, now you want to be like the unbeliever and get away with it as well and so we're told in this in the, by the parallelism is don't let the operation of the rebellious uh, believer or the unbeliever, the one who is unjust and unrighteous. Uh, cause problems in your spiritual life. Why? Because there is going to be, eventually be, um, be judgment. And so we need to keep our ideas, our focus on the end game. Now, in the, one of the problems that we face as believers as we think through this issue of being surrounded by uh, injustice or being surrounded by, uh, an unfair situation, Whether it's real or whether it's perceived, the issue is how we respond. It's our internal focus. Now, there's two different kinds of assaults that we get from the evildoer. One is an overt assault when you know that someone is specifically attacking you. It's out in the open. Someone is making a a case against you or spreading malicious rumors against you or lies against you or somebody has betrayed you whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, whether it is a close friend. I think many of us have gone through circumstances where we have been deeply hurt by someone who, under the guise of righteousness, has betrayed us or treated us wrongly. Then we have uh, covert assaults. Covert assaults are assaults that we're not aware of. And this takes place when somebody does something behind our back. Maybe we find out about it later later. Uh, Maybe we don't, but it is not out in the open. So we need to learn how to deal with these kinds of situations. Sometimes it's just the general uh, situation related to culture. Sometimes it has to do with uh, specific individual problems. The real problem that bothers us and bothers believers who are walking with the Lord and who are righteous is that we have a sense of the way things ought to be. A lot of unbelievers have this, but because of the fact that they have uh, calloused themselves in terms of their own unrighteousness and in their own suppression of truth in unrighteousness they 're not a- as uh, as easily reminded of this as as believers are they 're not as sensitive to it and what we find is that as we look around, we see people who are. Uh, perhaps they're living out of wedlock, they're living together, they haven't gotten married, or they're uh, involved in overt sins that are perverted, or they're involved in, uh, in unethical conduct in their business, and yet they seem to be quite successful. Uh, as churches, we can look around and see that there are many churches in uh, in America, many churches just in, in Houston here. That seem to be quite successful. They're quite large. They attract thousands and thousands of people, and yet their doctrine is perverted. Their methodology is perverted. They have pandered to the culture, and they are preaching a false gospel. And if they're not preaching a false gospel, they've watered it down so much to where it becomes an impotent gospel, and they are not emphasizing truth at all. And in many cases, they have succumbed to heresy and they're no longer teaching the Bible at all. They're teaching some sort of false system of spirituality, and so it's easy to look at them and say, "Well, how in the world can they be so, so successful and so, um, so, so apparently so blessed when they're not even teaching the the truth?" So we have these situations that occur where we see the apparent success. Of injustice all around us. And so it's hard for us. You also, also can look at people who are working in a job. They work hard. They're ethical. They get there early. They leave late. And yet there are others who use their personality and manipulation and gossip to get ahead, and they seem to advance. And so our response is to to become concerned. And on the one hand, we can become angry about it. And on the other hand, we can become envious. So in terms of human viewpoint, these are the two broad categories of that response. We can respond with mental attitude sin, or we can respond with the idea that if you can't beat them, join them. So there's a temptation to, for example, to compromise on doctrine, to compromise on your uh, personal policies, or to compromise on your philosophy of life now, this is really going to get difficult for a lot of people right now in houston i don 't know what the situation will be when this is aired, but in Houston, we have had this ongoing situation in city government since last spring now it 's when i 'm recording this it 's uh, mid October, and since last spring there 's been this uh, attempt to change uh, uh equal rights uh, this Houston equal rights ordinance and to change the ordinance in terms of having the same equal rights and civil rights for those who are gay lesbian and transgender even to the point that uh mandating that buildings have uh have restrooms that anyone can use that are open to anyone that who and, and gyms uh, dressing areas, anything that would be open to somebody who thinks that they are the opposite sex. It is an assault on biblical values, and at its very core, it is an assault on the Bible, and it's assault on any religious system that holds absolutes in the area of sexuality, including Islam and Orthodox Judaism. And so people who have made decisions that they do not believe that homosexuality is right or that these sexual deviants are are right uh, are put in compromising positions in their jobs because now they're being forced by city government to institute policy in, and to enforce policy in the workplace that violates their personal belief and be, this works now because we've created a culture based on secularism where about 99.9% of Christians have bifurcated their souls and they have one set of values that works in civil society and then they operate on another set of of, of values when they're alone or when they're in their private life. And, and what that really means is that there's, they at an epistemological level, They've already committed to the fact that there are two sets of operational values – one set of absolutes that works at the workplace. And, of course, I can't take my personal values to the workplace because then I'll be fired. And I actually know that there's at least one person in this congregation who was fired from a job because of his stand on homosexuality. And if you are so committed to your paycheck that you won't stand up against these unethical uh, pr- practices that are being handed down from the Human Resources Department at Exxon or at the city government or whatever, then you have committed your life to secularism and you've committed your life to a pagan worldview and you're already becoming a loser and a failure in your Christian life. The values that you believe on Sunday morning that you espouse from the Bible must be the values that dictate your behavior 24-7 at the workspace and if you don't do that, then you've already compromised and you're living a life of compromise. And this has been so subtle, that, and this is one of the reasons that Christians have very little impact on the culture anymore, is because epistemologically they've already lost the battle probably 20 or 30 years ago. So we have to be careful. We can't get involved in a human viewpoint rationale that leads us to compromise, because after all, it's the job. After all, that's what I have to do to take care of of my my family and to pay the bills, uh, we have to stand up. And, and after 30 years of assaults on on employee, employees, uh, this is almost impossible to reverse this process. I remember back in the late 1980s when I had a man in my church who was an employee of what was then Southwestern Bell, and all of the employees had to go through sensitivity training, and then the next year all the employees had to go through basically a visual guided imagery course, which was nothing more than New Age metaphysics, and everybody had to do that. And if you didn't do it, then you would lose your job. And so most Christians did not take a stand because they wouldn't lose their job. This is the kind of incrementalism that has taken place in the world around us which has basically rendered most Christians ineffective, out of fellowship most of the time. Remember in First John, the issue of being out of fellowship was doctrine. It wasn't practice. It wasn't sin. The primary issue that John's talking about is if you had a wrong view of the person and work of Christ, then you were out of fellowship. We tend to think of getting out of fellowship as only the result of committing a sin. But if you have a compromised doctrine at the core of your thinking – then, then you're never going to go anywhere in your Christian life and going to church and learning the Bible is just a waste of time until you straighten out your value system, and it's a value system that you are implementing 100%, 24-7, around the clock. So we can't compromise on moral issues, on ethical issues. Our Our personal life policy needs to govern everything. And see, this is the assault that's taking place right now. What is happening from the liberal left is that there is an assault on biblical Judeo-Christian values, and they're saying that religion needs to be confined to the pulpit, it needs to be confined and restricted to Sunday morning, but it can't leak out of the church and impact anything else that's going on. And that is the devil's world, and are, we have to decide, are we going to live according to uh, the, as a result of this outside pressure from the world and compromise with it, are we going to stand firm against it? And this impacts everybody. If you're a police officer, if you are in the military, if you are in any kind of work for the federal government, then you're being asked to implement and validate policies that are contrary to God's word, and eventually you have to make a decision whether your spiritual life is more important than having a job. Uh, and this is a major problem for a lot of people, and it's, I understand sometimes it takes it took a long time to get to this place in your personal life, and it may take you a while to be able to disengage simply because of the, the decisions that have already already been made. Uh, if you're in the military, and I think about people I know that are in the chaplaincy, and you you get in a situation where more and more things are being put upon you as a chaplain that this is what you have to do, that you may believe runs counter to your belief about the Word of God, you may not be in a position to just immediately change your job. You may have to, uh, it may take you two or three years. You may be close to retirement. You may have to uh, take a hit uh, in terms of staying in your job for three or four more years to finish that retirement. But you didn't get to the place you are overnight, and you're not going to get out of it overnight either. Uh, It's real easy for us to say, well, you just need to quit being an employee there. But the reality is you do still need to pay your bills. You still need to do other things. You have to figure out a strategy to disengage before you can make those kinds of decisions. But the first step is realizing that maybe we're in positions where we need to disengage. So we need to make sure that our responses to the world around us are not motivated by our sin nature. They're not motivated by anger. They're not motivated by a desire to be secure in our job or our finances because that means that we're looking to our job, our career, our finances as a source of security and not to the Word of God. So we have to not be envious of the workers of iniquity. Now, this last phrase is an interesting phrase. Literally, it's translated in some passages as those who do evil. And this is, uh, the term evil here actually represents uh, those who are engaged in policies and practices that are hostile to the word of God. They're involved in some sort of injustice. The word that's translated evil is the Hebrew word avola, Uh, from aval which is the word for uh, sin or iniquity and the word avola refers to someone who's just a criminal it can refer to someone who's a sinner it can refer to those who live their lives with no reference whatsoever to god or to righteousness or to morality it it has sort of an abstract sense that can refer to those who are oppressing believers those who are hostile to god those who are atheists. So it has a broad range of meanings, but basically it relates to anyone who is living their life apart from God and apart from divine absolutes. So we're not supposed to be envious of them. Why? The why question is answered in Psalm 37, verse 2. In Psalm 37, verse 2, we read, "...for they shall soon be cut down like the grass." This is imagery that is often used in Scripture. Isaiah talks about for the grass withers and the flower fades. We have these various images throughout scripture that grass is something that is temporary. It is something that doesn't last long. Uh, In, in Israel, you have two rainy seasons. One is in the spring, one is in the late fall, and when you, and in between, you have a dry season. And so when the early rains come, which are the spring rains, then everything flowers, the grasses come out, there's plenty of food and forage for all of the animals. But then as the summer heat develops and as as the sun is high in the sky and the temperatures go up into the mid to upper 90s, there's no rain. For three or four months there's no rain and the grass uh, will wither and the plants will die. And so that's what this picture is: is that this is something that is temporary. It, it appears initially that the plant or the person has been very successful. He's flourishing. He's fruitful. He's productive, but it won't last. And in terms of not lasting, we have to put our perspective on eternity to get our mindset out of the idea that that uh, that life consists of just a couple of decades or a few years. Often we look at somebody and we say, oh you know, they're flourishing, they're doing so well. Look at how evil they are. Maybe for five or ten years, especially in our world today when we're so transient, it looks like they're very successful. And we don't necessarily see how God will uh, correct that or bring divine discipline into their lives. And many times we don't see uh, things that are happening that, uh, that are outside of our vision. We see somebody at work, who's being successful because of unethical practices, he may change jobs and go somewhere else. Sooner or later, it may catch up with him, and we have no way of seeing that. We don't know what's happening behind the scenes in his personal life or at home. So we just have to put our attention on the Lord. The promise is that eventually there will be justice in every situation. Sometimes we may see some of it in this life. I know many of us may pray, Lord, I just want to watch. I just want to see you eventually bring them to justice. In many cases in this life, that's all the blessing these people will ever get. If they're Christians in the church age, they may end up with a complete loss of everything except their salvation at the judgment seat of Christ but there is accountability eventually for everyone and that's the principle of verse 2 it's a reminder to us that the reason that we should not be uh, upset about the evil doer is because eventually they're going to get what they deserve we should not be envious of those who treat god lightly the workers of iniquity because eventually they will be cut down and their whatever prosperity they have will be destroyed the solution for us is the beginning of this great section of promises that we have starting in, in verse three. Starting in verse three we read uh, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Now there's a couple of things that we ought to understand about this. First of all, we have we have three imperatives here trust, dwell, and feed. Trust, dwell, and feed. There's a progression there. Trust, it has to do with belief, with confidence in God. Dwell in the land is, has to be understood in terms of the land promises of God in the Old Testament, but it would have application uh, to us as church age believers. And feed on his faithfulness is a very important and interesting Uh, Imagery that feed on his faithfulness is probably not the correct translation. So we are to trust in the Lord. That word for trust is the Hebrew word batak, and it means to trust, to rely on something, to feel safe or secure, to put confidence in something, and to totally uh, rely upon something, to be totally dependent upon something. Somewhere along the line, uh, people got the idea that this was a wrestling term and it had to do with with do, doing some sort of a body slam on a mat. Uh, there's no indication in Hebrew. I've looked at this for probably 30 years. No indication that has anything to do with, with uh, this word. There's an Arabic cognate that has the idea of throwing something to the ground. But that meaning, according to all the major uh, Hebrew lexicons and sources, is not found in any Hebrew usage anywhere. Instead, this word is very important because it has the idea of placing a confidence in someone. It's an assured reliance. It's the idea of that you feel very secure, totally secure, in someone being able to do what they claim to do. So the emphasis is on the security of that trust and the idea of safety in that reliance upon the person that you're trusting. So we trust in the Lord. It brings to bear ideas of be confident in Yahweh, uh, trust in him, feel secure and safe in him, and do good. Uh, That is, to do that which is good. We are to trust in Yahweh. And uh, we are, as a result, we are to do uh, good. The word there for good is tov, which often has that idea of doing what God says to do. Tov is an interesting word. It doesn't. It, it can borderline on a an ethical standard like righteousness. And many people read righteousness into the word good, but tov really is a word that has more to do with with something fitting a plan. For example, in the creation week, when God is creating, at the end of each day he would see everything and say that it was good. That means it was according to his plan. He had a blueprint. Day one he did the first stage, and at the end he said it's good. It's according to plan. When he finished, he said it was very good. That doesn't mean that it's righteous, if you want to import the meaning of righteousness to the core meaning of tov, you have a little problem when you get to Genesis 2, because in Genesis 2, God used the same word when he said it's not good for man to be alone. If good has the sense of ethical righteousness, then it would be unethical and unrighteousness unrighteous for man to be alone. So that just doesn't fit because there's nothing immoral or unethical or unrighteous about being single. There is some. It's not according to God's plan, though. It's not his ideal. His ideal is for man and woman to come together uh, as a union in marriage. But there's nothing wrong, unethical or, or immoral or unrighteous about being single. But if Tove has an ethical sense, then that's where you end up. And so we have to be very careful with these kinds of words. The idea is that, uh, we are to do good. That is, we are to live according to God's plan. Now, God's plan, of course, is righteous, but that's not the prime, the sense here. He's not saying be righteous. It's saying live according to God's plan, which, of course, would be, uh, living in accordance with, with God's word. Uh, the second Uh, Just another thought on uh, trusting in the Lord is this word is found in passages like Isaiah 12.2, Behold, uh, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yahweh, is the Lord, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. So that's another great promise. I will trust and not be afraid, juxtaposing fear with faith. Uh, Isaiah 26.4 says, trust in the Lord forever, for in Yahweh the Lord is everlasting strength. Jeremiah 17.5 says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, so these are very important passages for understanding uh, this this important distinction these very important promises that we have from the, from the um, uh, from the scripture jeremiah seventeen six and seven talking about the person who has uh, to trust in man. His confidence is in man, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Notice, there's a imagery of that dwelling in the land, just as we have here in Deuteronomy, I mean in Psalm thirty-seven, uh, three. So we are to be to trust in the Lord, and the result in Jeremiah seventeen eight then is for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters. Which spreads out its roots by the river. This is imagery very similar to what we saw of the righteous man who who puts his roots down like a well watered tree in Psalm chapter uh, in Psalm one. So the focus here is on the fact that there is um, uh, God gives us security and stability. We trust in the Lord and we do good. Now another thing that we see here. In, in Psalm 37, 3, uh, is a command to dwell in the land. The land for a Israelite, for an Israelite in the Old Testament, the land is his, his, uh, place to, where God promised blessing to Abraham and his descendants. So it has to do with being in a position of obedience. This would be comparable for the church age believer in terms of living and walking by God the Holy Spirit. So, we are to live where God wants us in light of our position in Christ uh, that would be the application for us and feeding on his faithfulness now, what does it mean to feed on his faithfulness the the um I want you to notice a couple of things here. first of all, it says it would feed on his faithfulness. the word his that third person singular pronoun is not found in the Hebrew text at all. It just says. There's a word for feed, there's an imperative, and then there's a word for, that deals with uh, righteousness and in terms of uh, God's faithfulness, which is the word emuna in the Hebrew, which has to do with steadfastness, faithfulness, or, or, or integrity. So the command there, the word for feed, is an imperative that tells us to do something. It's the word ra'ah that has the idea of shepherding, leading, cultivating, or even feeding, as a shepherd would lead his flocks to pasture. And so there's a command that you are to feed what? And then faithfulness. And the idea here is probably not feeding on God's faithfulness because there's no third-person singular pronoun there but it would be the idea of cultivating your own integrity, your own righteousness. Dwell in the land, that is where God has placed you, and develop and grow in terms of your own experiential righteousness, your own integrity. So that fits the pattern. You do want trust in the Lord is the synonymous parallel to dwell in the land. And then the result of trusting the Lord is to do good, to follow out God's plan. And so that would fit the parallel with feeding or cultivating your own righteousness, your own integrity. So this is part of the promise is that we're to focus on our own spiritual life and our own spiritual growth. Now we come to verse 4. Verse 4 is the main part of our promise here. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, I'm, excuse me, that's verse 3, did not, why am I not skipping? Okay, here we go. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Notice in the first line you have an imperative delight, yourself in Yahweh, that he is the focus of our joy. The second line in verse 4 gives the results. The results of your delighting in the Lord is that he will give you the desires of your heart. The second verse, verse 5, gives another command, commit your way to the Lord, and then a parallel to that, trust also in him. So committing your way to the Lord And trusting in Him, and there's our word batach again, having confidence in Him. And then the result is He will bring to pass. So both the, both verses emphasize God's answer to prayer, but that prayer grows out of a life that, where we are delighting in the Lord and we have committed our way to Him. Let's look at some of the information here related to the, the verbiage. The word delight is a word that's in what what Hebrew calls a hithpa'el stem. Now, Hebrew verbs have different what they call stems, and each one has a different nuance. Usually the hithpa'el is a reflexive causative. That means you're doing something to yourself, causing something to happen to yourself. And the meaning of a word in, for example, you have a word in the cow, stem or the PL stem may have a completely different meaning from what's in the Hithpile stem. So usage uh, really uh, is important here. And there's a, uh, the word here has to do with uh, taking delight or joy in something. And our joy is in the Lord. It's so often we get distracted in life where our real pleasures come from people around us. Our pleasures come from things that we have, uh, hobbies we enjoy, activities we enjoy. And what this is saying is our number one priority needs to be in the Lord. We need to delight in the Lord. We need to take real joy in what the Lord takes joy in. We need to focus upon Him and upon His Word. And that we need to, instead of being preoccupied with ourself, we need to be occupied with the Lord and the things of the Lord. If we're too busy to listen to three or four or five hours of Bible teaching during each and every week, you're too busy. You have to straighten out your life, figure out a way to put your priorities right. You spend time doing what you want to do. We're all that way. When you look and evaluate your life, you eat what you want to eat and not what you think you ought to eat or wish you ought to eat. We do what we want to do. You look at how you spend your time. That tells you what you really want to do. And if you're not spending your time in the Word, and if you're not spending your time focused on the things of the Lord, then that really isn't a priority to you no matter how you say. So you need to have a long talk with yourself and refocus. We need to focus upon the Lord. Uh, This word is used in passage such as Job 22.26, which says, for then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. The idea of lifting up your face to God has to do with prayer. So in both places, we have a a, an, an environment, a context, talking about the importance of prayer and communication with God. So delighting in the Lord isn't just a matter of reading your Bible or studying or listening to the pastor teach the Word but it moves forward into that ongoing relationship with the Lord. It is enjoying our fellowship. Too often we've had people who've gotten the idea from the phrase in fellowship that all I have to do is confess my sin and I'm in fellowship. But, but, that That's a misunderstanding of what that means. To be in fellowship means to enjoy fellowship, to be involved in a relationship with God, to be moving forward in that relationship with God. It's an active concept, not a static or passive concept. And so we need to recognize that we are... Actively walking by the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ. See, these other terms that are used give a dynamic to fellowship that we lose when we just use that phrase in fellowship. And too many people have uh, really hurt their spiritual life by not understanding that. So part of this, of course, then is delighting in the Lord, is delighting in, in God's Word, delighting in God's will. And the only way that we can know God's will is to know God's word. When we look at other promises, for example, uh, p- very much parallel to this, when we look at the fact that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give us the desires of our heart, that word desire is the word mishalah in the Hebrew, and the center of the word, the the, the first part is a uh, forms a noun the maim at the beginning the im at the beginning and the uh f- prefix at the end uh has to do with the uh, uh the making it a genitive uh sha'al is the center of it and that means to ask something and he's going to give us the requests of our heart well this doesn't mean that God's going to give us whatever we want he's not just some santa claus up in the sky we have to look at passages such as First uh, John five fourteen and 15, where John says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. See, if we delight in the Lord, we're going to learn God's will, and we're going to think God's way. And as a result of that, what we ask of him is going to be in accordance with his will and his way. We're going to be... Uh, uh, walking and, I mean, thinking in terms of divine viewpoints. So we need to uh, think in terms of his word. John fifteen seven says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So those words have to be abiding in us. And then uh, Jesus said, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The precondition for answered prayer is that we're praying according to God's will and we know God's will. And the only way that we can know God's will is to, is to understand uh, His Word and what He has given to us and what He has provided for us. So what we see here is a very important principle that we need to, as part of delighting in the Lord, is we need to understand exactly what His uh, what his will is. So in, then we come to verse uh, verse five, which develops the thought even further. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will do it. Now this is an important word here at the very beginning. Commit. The English word for commit has a different nuance from the Hebrew word for commit. Uh, The English word for commit has the idea in in one meaning, looking at the the various meanings in the Oxford English Dictionary, only the third meaning uh, would relate to this, and that's the idea of transferring something for safekeeping to somebody else. But generally it has ideas in the English word commit that aren't part of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is galal, which means to roll something. And it has that idea of rolling something over onto somebody else that is entrusting something to them, handing something over to someone for safekeeping, uh, surrendering something to somebody else so that they can provide for it or take care of it. That's the idea. It's parallel to the idea of casting our cares upon him because he cares for, for us. The word there for your way is the path of your life. This is the course of your life. It brings into uh, focus what we often find in wisdom literature is what direction is your life going to take? Are you following God and God's plan for your life and your ultimate destiny in his plan? Or are you living your life according to your own way? Proverbs says that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. So we're to commit our way, commit our life, uh, to the Lord, that means to entrust it to him, which is what comes up in the second uh, line there to trust in him, Batak, where to uh, the, so commit here, galal and trust, Batak are parallel. whereas the English words commit and trust are not the same thing. Uh, so this is gets a problem for people in the gospel. They say, well, you need to commit your life to Christ. but in English, commit is not a synonym for trust. And so that's not a good way to explain the gospel. The Bible says we are to believe in Jesus Christ uh, as our Savior. So this is really commit is, is an awkward term. It should be has the idea casting uh, our, your way to the Lord or rolling your way over something like that. I find another word other than commit to emphasize this idea of trust. This is developed in passages like Isaiah 26, 3, and 4. Uh, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yahweh the Lord is everlasting strength. So an emphasis that we have here is on the faithfulness of God. Passages that we see developed, uh, where this idea is developed later on in the psalm, Turn, turn page down to verse 25, where David says, I've been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. What he means by that is even if your life is lost for whatever reason, even if your health is lost, God has not deserted us. God always takes care of us, maybe not in the way that we think or hope that we would, but God never deserts us. Um, He's ever, verse 26, he's ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. So this is the person who is righteous, who lives the right kind of way. Generally, this is true. That's what wisdom literature is. These aren't promises. Uh, this is, uh, here, this is stating a general uh, truth. That's what wisdom literature is. Uh, Psalm 30, uh, our Lamentations three twenty two and 23 is another favorite promise, dealing with the faithfulness of God. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Other passages that we can go to, uh, for example, Isaiah thirty fifteen through 19 is another great passage on the strength of God. Uh, in our own passage, uh, if we look at verse uh, 28, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints, They are preserved forever, seeing contrast to the unrighteous who is blown away. Uh, the The Lord loves justice, does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land. The focus there is on inheritance, not upon salvation or justification. God is the one who takes care of the righteous. This is David's conclusion in verse 39 but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be reminded of these great promises of your faithfulness, your trustworthiness, that our confidence, our security, our safety should be totally put in your hands and that we are not to be uh, uh compromised by the world system we're not to be envious of those in the world but we are to take our firm stand against the uh the trends of the age and the influence of the cosmic system no matter what it may entail because otherwise it has uh, it presents a tremendous danger to our spiritual life and the health of our soul Father, we pray that you'd give us the courage of our convictions. In Christ's name, amen.